Blog Talk Radio.
evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Battle Road Radio. <clears throat> I'd like to thank everybody for listening tonight, listening live, and uh, thank those folks that are going to listen to the show in its archives in the following uh, days, and weeks, months, years, because we have folks still listening to shows that we did uh, five years ago. Uh, they're still listening to them uh, this year. So <clears throat> I want to thank the folks that are listening because we're we're edging up on uh, a million downloads, and uh, it's really not uh, not too shabby. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to talk about the American Revolutionary War Battles of May. You know, every uh, every month or so, every couple of months, I like to I like to draw attention and do some uh, get folks to think about the battles that are happening that happened that month, you know, the specific month that we're in. And uh, this uh, month in May, there were quite a few battles in May, but we're just going to pick out a few. We've got uh, the Battle of the Cedars, uh, which was actually the tail end, the, the, the butt end of the invasion of Quebec, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. We've got Meg's Raid, which was uh, really the first uh, the first Patriot victory after the fall of New York, after they were at the after the Patriots had been run out of New York, New Jersey. New Jersey. Uh, uh, we'll quickly mention the Battle of Chillicothe, and uh, then we're going to talk about uh, the Battle of Waxhaws. Uh, all right. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, I'd like to let folks know that we've got uh, a ladies only uh, Ghosts of Goliad class coming up uh, in June, and uh, <clears throat> this is a an event that we're doing with. Uh, the Grand Gun groups out of uh, Houston, out of League City, and, and several of the sister chapters from League City. <clears throat> and uh, that is going to be on uh, June 27th and 28th. And it's ladies only, but it's not just ladies only for the Girl on a Gun members. All right? If you're if any... Any ladies are welcome to attend. You don't have to be members of the Girl on a Gun group. We'd like uh, any ladies who would like to attend to uh, to come out and uh, spend the two days with us, uh, getting a good solid uh, uh, a good solid block of fundamentals of rifle. <clears throat> That'll be June twenty uh, seventh. And 28th, <clears throat> we've got the uh, June 6th and 7th two-day pistol craft and fighting handgun class coming up as well. Uh, that is, uh, those are the two separate courses, but we're going to put them back to back so you can take uh, one or both. Now, in order to take the the fighting handgun, you're going to have to have taken. Uh, the pistol craft or a, a uh, or its equivalent, the pistol craft class from Battle Road or its equivalent from some other uh, shooting school.
folks, I think we lost Scout, but stand by for a minute. I'll be trying to get him back. It looks. I'm looking at the board, and it looks to me like uh, like I'm still on. So maybe maybe it's Sam that. Uh, that has dropped off. Mm. All right, well, I'm just going to keep on going. Uh, the forces around uh, uh, Boston <coughs> were growing, and uh, and they weren't really, they didn't really need that many because there was really no danger of the British uh, sallying forth from Boston. They were pretty much sewn up in there. And uh, and Arnold and uh, <clears throat> uh, had come to Washington with a, a request to to send a force to invade uh, uh, Canada. They were going to invade and take Quebec, and that's that's what the invasion of Quebec was about. They had. Uh, uh, Several forces, uh, and this was the first really major military initiative by the by the newly formed Continental Army, because uh, up until this point, like I said, there was really nothing they were doing other than the siege of Boston. And the objective of the uh, of the campaign was to gain military control of the British province of Quebec and to convince the the French King and Canadians to join the revolution on the side of the Thirteen Colonies. So one of the expeditions left Fort Ticonderoga uh, under Richard Montgomery. They besieged and captured Fort St. John's. Very nearly captured the British General Guy Carleton when they took Montreal. The other expedition left Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this one was led by Benedict Arnold. And this traveled with great difficulty through the wilderness of Maine to Quebec City. Now we've covered uh, covered the the actual. Uh, we covered the actual uh, invasion of Quebec before. I'm not going to go into the the invasion of Quebec. We'll just, uh, other than peripherally, uh, and the and while the while the invasion was not a success, I'm telling you, it was absolutely. Uh, if you read about it. It's absolutely fantastic the what these guys did in order to get to the the amount of hardships they faced and uh, it was just it's, it's just amazing. All right, so they have the once they've invaded Quebec, they uh, they fight until the winter. Uh, at the last minute, uh, they are at Quebec, and this is in the middle of a snowstorm. And the uh, the attack was a failure. Uh, the uh, the American forces, the Patriots, <clears throat> were uh, not successful in taking the. The city. They had to uh, uh, retreat in uh, in disarray. Uh, the forces uh, the the forces left the city in retreat. They in, they ended up uh, they ended up setting up uh, a garrison. At Montreal, uh, so the Battle of the, Siri, the Cedars was actually a, a series of military confrontations uh, during the Colonel Army's invasion of Quebec. It started in uh, 1775, and the skirmishes, which, in, which involved really a very limited combat, occurred in May of 1776 at and around the Cedars, 
which is about uh, 28 miles west of Montreal. The uh, Continental Army units were opposed by a small number of British troops, leading a much larger force of Indian, uh, uh, their uh, uh, Indian allies, the Iroquois, and Loyalist militia. Brigadier General Benedict Arnold was commanding the military garrison in Montreal. Now, he had placed a detachment of his troops at the Cedars in, in uh, April of 1776. And after receiving rumors of British and Indian uh, military forces gathering and preparing uh, to attack to the west of Montreal. Now, the garrison that he left there surrendered on May 19th after a confrontation with the uh, the com- combined forces of the British and Indian troops. American reinforcements that were on the way to reinforce the garrison also surrendered. <coughs> uh, they were captured after a brief skirmish on May 20th. All the captives, all the fo- all the, uh, the patriots that were taken prisoner were eventually released after uh, negotiations between Forrester and, and Arnold, who was... Uh, was actually bringing a much larger force in. And the terms of the agreement required the Americans to release an equal number of British prisoners. However, the deal was repudiated by Congress, and no British prisoners were freed. So that was uh, was kind of a blight on it. Now, the guy that was running the, the uh, or that was commanding the garrison at, Montre- uh, at Montreal near the Cedars, Lieutenant Isaac Butterfield, and uh, Colonel Timothy Battle uh, were the leaders of the American forces at the Cedars. They were both court-martialed and uh, tossed out of the Army for their roles in this affair because they they basically surrendered without putting up much of a fight at all. This... uh, these battles, these skirmishes, uh, were really the end of the of the battle of uh, of the invasion of Canada. Now, as I said earlier, the Americans didn't hold up their side of the prisoner exchange. Uh, they repudiated the agreement, the agreement for the exchange. Uh, Despite protests by George Washington, uh, the Congress of the American Congress had accused Forster uh, of mistreating American prisoners by turning them over to the Indians. And uh, so I guess they felt that that uh, gave them reason not to surrender their British captives. Uh, There were reports that the British had turned the uh, the Patriot prisoners over to their Indian allies and that they were barbarously murdered by the savages. Uh, this these allegations were were unsubstantiated. There had been little evidence found that any of their prisoners were turned over to the Indians and killed, but that's a story that got put out and that's what Congress used uh in order to uh, repudiate the prisoner exchange. The Benedict Arnold initially blamed Battle for this defeat, and he removed both Battle and Butterfield from command and sent them uh, back for court-martial. And now, due to the Army's retreat, the two men were not even tried until August of 1776 at Fort uh, Ticonderoga. Both were convicted, cashiered for the Army, uh, Lieutenant Bell continued to volunteer his services, uh, and following Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga in October of 77, he was given a new commission by Congress, and he continued on in the Continental, uh, in the service of the Continental Army. The uh, battle that we'll talk about is Meg's Raid. Now, Meg's Raid is also known as the Battle of Sag Harbor. This was a military raid uh, 
that was uh, put on by the American Continental Army Forces. It wasn't militia. This were actual Continental Army Forces. And you have to remember that that a great deal of the fighting in the colonies was not done, at least early on, by the Continental Army. The majority of the fighting was done by uh, local militias, uh, state militias. The Continental Army was growing, but it was growing very slowly. And the majority of the fighting was done by militias, but the the Battle uh, of Sag Harbor, Meg's Raid, was actually a military raid sanctioned and carried out by Continental Forces. Uh, the commander was uh, the Connecticut Colonel Jonathan Meg, uh, British Loyalist Foraging Party at Sag Harbor, New York, on May 24, 1770. Uh, six Loyalists were killed, 90 captured. The Americans suffered no casualties, and the raid was made in response to a successful raid on Danbury in late April that was opposed by American forces. Uh, and this uh, this uh, event was called the Battle of Ridgefield, and there was uh, uh, there were there were quite a few battles during the American Revolutionary War, uh, but most of them were fairly small. Up until uh, during this time, the, the, up until 1776, the the American Revolutionary War was really a, a very qualified success for the British. I mean, the Patriots had uh, April 19th, uh, and then they had the Siege of Boston. But uh, but not much after that was a success for them. After they were forced to, to abandon Boston, after the British were forced to abandon Boston, they captured New York City, uh, but were unable to hold New Jersey when General George Washington surprised them at Trenton and Princeton at the end of 76. Now, the British consolidated their hold on New York City and Long Island during the winter months of 77, while the Continental Army established a land blockade around the city in New Jersey, southern New York, and southwestern Connecticut. In the spring of 77, uh, General Howe launched raiding expeditions against Continental Army and the local uh, militia storage depot near the city. Uh, There was a successful raid against uh, Peekskill, New York, in March, which prompted uh, Howe to organize a more ambitious expedition to raid a depot in Danbury. Now, this expedition was led by the, uh, the former royal governor in New York, who was William Tryon. They successfully reached Danbury from Landing Point in Fairfield on the 26th of April, and they destroyed all of the provisions and supplies that were stored there. The Connecticut militia had mobilized, and over the next two days, they skirmished back and forth with the British as the British marched back to their ships, and most notably on April 27th at Ridgefield, at the Battle of Ridgefield. Uh, General Samuel Holden Parsons, who led Connecticut's defenses, decided to organize uh, a specific act of reprisal for this attack. And the opportunity to do so came when they learned that a British foraging expedition uh, was landing at Sag Harbor on Long Island. Sag Harbor had been occupied by British troops after the August uh, 76 Battle of Long Island. And they'd established a really a, a pretty strong defensive position on Meeting House Hill with with a lot of uh, uh, earthen fortifications, and uh, they'd built palisades. And the town was actually really well-suited for providing the, the supplies for the Royal Navy, which used Gardner's Bay as an anchorage while patrolling the eastern end of Long Island. And here's the deal. the uh, New York is an island, and... And if you control the water, you control the island. And that's what the British did. So they were able to control New York because uh, they were able to command uh, the water surrounding New York. 
uh, so Gardner's Bay was a, a they were using Gardner's Bay as an anchorage while they were patrolling the eastern end of Long Island. Now the foraging expedition consisted of twelve smaller boats protected by a schooner which uh, had uh, twelve mounted guns. Now remember that that they can hold the island because it's an island and they control the waterways. But they are limited uh, in the amount of provisions on the island, on the island of New York, because there's only so much there. So in order to continue to supply their troops with food, they would have to go on foraging expeditions, and that's what they would do. They would, you know, they would take uh, uh, a dozen or so uh uh, large rowboats that you know they would hold uh, sometimes 25, 30, or even 40 men. They would uh, cross to the mainland. They would land, and these these foraging parties would go out and they would confiscate the food, cattle, pigs, chickens, grain, uh, whatever they could get, and then bring it back to the boats, load it back up, and take it back to the uh, to the garrison there on. Long Island, on the island. Parsons' report, and this is a report that he gave to General Washington afterwards. They assembled a force totaling about 234 men, uh, and they met at New Haven. And they, these the men were from several different regiments, and they rowed in 13 whale boats from New Haven to Guilford on May 21st. Now, rough seas and high winds prevented them uh, from crossing over for two days. And when they finally left Guilford on the afternoon of May 23rd, they were accompanied on the crossing by two armed sloops, one that was, uh, and one that was unarmed. Uh, only 170 men made the crossing to the vicinity of South Holt, New York. They got there about uh, 6 p.m. Then Meg learned that most of the British forces in the area to New York City. There was only a small force of loyalists actually left at Sag Harbor. So he had his men at Portage at 11 of the whaleboats across the North Fork to the bay and launched those boats with 130 men to cross the bay to Sag Harbor. Now, by midnight, they'd made it across the bay, and they landed about four miles down from the harbor. Then Meggs marched his men uh, up to the harbor and got there about 2 a.m., and he divided his force into two sections. One detachment stormed the earthworks at uh, Sag Harbor, while the other one actually went into the harbor, destroyed the British boats, and they started collecting provisions. The land attack was conducted uh, in silence. They didn't, uh, they didn't form up and fire volleys. What they did there in the middle of the night was they very quietly fixed bayonets, and uh, an attack without without any battle cries, without any shooting. Uh, apparently, there was only shot one shot during the battle that was said to have fired. The schooner, the British schooner that was in the bay, did open fire on the attackers as they saw them burning the British boats. But sources are unclear if the schooner itself was taken and destroyed. But uh, but apparently, 12 other boats were destroyed, and the raiders took 53 prisoners, either the loyalists that were left there at the earthworks, and another 37 prisoners at the wharf, and uh, they suffered no casualties themselves. These prisoners were then taken back to Connecticut. Now, the Long Island loyalist uh, community got together, they organized their own response to the raid. In May of 1779, nine loyalists crossed the Sound and captured Connecticut's militia general, uh, Selleck Silliman, at his home and took him back to Long Island. Connecticut patriots then captured a judge on Long Island in November of 1779, and they used a judge to exchange the, to get the... Uh, Militia General back to get General Silman back in uh, May of 1780. <clears throat> so 
this was a uh, this particular battle would have been termed a success continental and uh, this is kind of the way that the war was that the war was being fought uh, at least in the early years uh, it, there were there were raids uh there were foraging battles <clears throat> a lot of the uh the battles that were fought were fought as reprisals uh this whole series uh, of the battle of, of Sag Harbor was actually a series of back and forth reprisals uh mainly uh, between the loyalists and the continentals the battle of Chillicothe uh, we'll just we'll talk about that very quickly because this is uh, uh, at, at first the Battle of Chillicothe was was termed a defeat, but but it actually wasn't because it had it had an effect uh, on those involved that actually made it a success for the Patriots. Uh, the Battle of Chillicothe was actually part of the Western Theater of the American Revolutionary War. In May of 1779, Colonel John Bowman of the Kentucky County Militia was accompanied by Benjamin Logan and Levi Todd. And they led between uh, between 160 and 300 militiamen. And they attacked the Shawnee town of Chillicothe. And when they got to Chillicothe, they divided their forces. Bowman and Logan attacked the town from two sides, Eventually, they were repulsed. Now, unable to draw the Shawnees from their one uh, one large blockhouse, Bowman burned much of the town and left with between uh, they're not. I guess their records are not very accurate, but between thirty to three hundred horses uh, that the Shawnees had. And like I said, although it was initially considered a defeat because they were repulsed. They couldn't they couldn't make a successful attack of the block blockhouse or get the Shawnees to leave it. Uh, the uh, Bowman and Logan were eventually credited with a, a victory for the Kentuckians because with the destruction of the Shawnee settlement there in Chillicothe, and the death of Cheek Blackfish, uh, a large number of the additional war parties were discouraged from uh, attacking the Kentucky colonists. They knew that, they, I'm sure that they were afraid that were they to do so, were they to attack the colonists and uh, and draw the attention and wrath of the uh the Kentucky militia, for they they may very well have their towns attacked and burned. So it prevented uh, it prevented the the Indians from the Shawnee Nation from moving against the Kentucky. Uh, so, like I said, eventually uh, eventually this was considered uh, a success. For the Patriots, uh, and the last one we're going to talk about tonight is uh, the Battle of Waxhaws, and uh, it's also known as the Waxhaws Massacre or uh, and even Buford's Massacre. This took place during the American Revolutionary War on May 29, 1780, and uh, the battle was located near Lancaster in South Carolina. This was fought between a an actual Continental Army force led by Abraham Buford and a mainly loyalist force led by Bannister Tarleton. Now you remember the uh, the movie The Patriot. In that movie, <clears throat> you had the uh, you had the villain, uh, and I don't remember the the, the actor's name. But you had the the villain there, which was they were they were portraying Bannister Tarleton, 
and uh, and uh, Bannister Talkin was uh, uh, was a pretty uh, uh, pretty controversial commander. <clears throat> the uh, the two sides met and. Uh, and once the battle began, uh, the Loyalist force, uh, led by Charlton, sent Buford uh, a demand for surrender. Now, Buford initially refused the demand, uh, but when his men were attacked by Charlton's cavalry, many of them threw down their arms to surrender uh, because Charlton's uh, had a large force of cavalry uh, fighting against Buford's infantry. Now, there are differing accounts uh, from both sides on a lot of the significant details, but apparently, once he saw his men surrendering, apparently attempted surrender, uh, but his surrender uh, was either rejected or not received. Uh, Charles' men continued killing the Continental soldiers, including men who were not resisting. Little quarter was given to the Patriots of the 400 or so Continentals. 113 of them were killed with sabers. Uh, that's, you know, hacked or stabbed. Uh, 150 of them were so badly injured they could not be moved. And uh, of the 400, there was only 53 left uh, prisoners by the British loyalists. So whenever you hear or read of Tarleton's Quarter, that's what this term refers to. Uh, It became a common expression for refusing to take prisoners. Uh... And in several of the subsequent battles in the Carolinas, there were there were very few of the folks uh, of the side that was defeated were taken alive by either side. Uh, now the battle, of course, was used in an extensive propaganda campaign by the Continental Army to bolster recruitment and resentment against the British. And I'm sure to try and uh, not only bolster recruit the recruitment, but to bolster courage. Uh, because if you can, if you can persuade your soldiers to understand that that if they surrender, they're going to be killed, then there is no good reason to surrender. Uh, so. <clears throat> So it certainly kind of helps if they know that uh, they better continue to fight if they hope to get out of their lives because if they surrender, they're going to be uh, they'll be captured and executed. That's uh, that's not a, uh, a winning proposition. Now, <clears throat> several accounts uh, of the battle. Uh, described Tarleton as as willing having no part in ordering the massacre and actually having uh, ordered medical treatment for the American prisoners and for the wounded. Others have Tarleton uh, himself ordering the massacre and uh, participating in it. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to decipher what really may or may not have happened uh, during the battle. Talk about uh, let's kind of talk about how it how this began. Following the British defeat at Saratoga in '77, uh, and that's where the French uh, entered into the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the British military decided to. Uh, to begin what they what they call a southern strategy, that's to win back uh, 
their rebellious North American colonies by fighting the South. And uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that that's where uh, a majority of the war was fought. It wasn't fought in New England uh, during the colonies. It was fought in the South. Uh, <clears throat> so after 78, the uh, the main thrust, the main uh, the main push in the war uh, was transferred to the South. In 78, uh, they captured Savannah, and they gained further ground in, in uh, 1780 when Clinton brought an army south and captured Charleston uh, on May 12th in 1780. Uh, Colonel Abraham Buford was commanding a force of about 380 uh, Virginian Continentals. Uh, and this was, uh, I think this was composed of the 7th Virginia Regiment, two companies of the 2nd Virginia Regiment, and then an artillery detachment with two six-pounders. Now, six-pounders are not very big. Uh, the, the description six-pounder, that describes the weight of the spherical projectile that the cannon fires, right? So, <clears throat> a round uh, lead ball, it doesn't have to be that big to be six pounds. Uh, I believe that the six pounders were about, I don't know if they were, if they were three inch or so. Nevertheless, at the time, that was considered a weapon of mass destruction because uh, even a six-pounder would go... You could hide behind a tree and escape a bullet. You could hide behind some earthen uh, uh, earthen works and it would protect... Or even in a, like in a, a log cabin, it would protect you from a bullet. But it would not protect you from uh, cannon fire. <clears throat> so even the small cannons were... Uh, uh, were were a big uh, plus for these forces. Now, most of Buford's men were were really were raw recruits. They didn't have much battle experience. Now, Buford did have experienced officers under his command, and due to delays in outfitting his command, Buford had been unable to reach Charleston to help in the defense of Charleston and had ordered him to take a defensive position near uh, Lamed's Ferry on the Santee River outside of the city. But Lincoln surrendered around the time that Buford reached the position. Buford was eventually joined by about 40 of the Virginia Light Dragoons who had escaped the siege or or had had managed to escape during battles outside of the city. Uh, and he was also joined by uh, Richard Caswell's North Carolina militia. Now, once Buford had gotten news of the surrender, uh, and the uh, the general in command, General Isaac Huger, uh, Buford Buford was ordered by Huger to return to Hillsboro in North Carolina. He turned his column around and started heading north at Camden. Buford and Caswell, they split up with Buford heading north in the Waxhaws. Buford was accompanied for a time by the South Carolina governor, John Rutledge, who had been actively recruiting military from the back country there. Now, when Buford stopped to rest his troops at Waxhaw Creek, Rutledge rode on ahead toward Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, British General Clinton learned of Uger's force and Rutledge's presence there. And on May 15th, he ordered Cornwallis to bring the South Carolina and Georgia backcountry under British control uh, before, I guess, Uger could begin his recruiting. Now, his army was moving too slowly to keep up with Buford. Uh, so on May 27th, Cornwallis sent uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton uh, to pursue Buford with a force of about 270 men. Now, this was uh, 
primarily loyalist provincial regiment. Uh, the force he took uh, whenever he began his pursuit out of Buford uh, consisted of 170 legion and British Army dragoons and 100 mounted British Legion infantry and a three-pounder cannon. Tall reached Camden late on May 28th, and he set off to pursue Buford around midnight the next morning. By the afternoon, his advance force of 60 dragoons from the 17th Light Dragoons and the British cavalry, 60 mounted infantry from the British Legion, and an additional flanking force of 30 British Legion dragoons and some infantry had reached Buford's resting place. Buford had, however, been warned of Charles' pursuit and had begun moving north. And uh, he was actually was two miles up the road. Charlton sent uh, Captain Kinlock forward to the rebel column carrying a uh, uh, a white flag to demand Buford's surrender. When uh, Kinlock arrived, Buford halted the march and formed a battle line while the parley took place. Tarleton, in his message to Buford, hugely exaggerated the size of the force, claiming he had 700 men, hoping to sway Buford's decision. The note also stated firmly to Buford that resistance being vain, to prevent the effusion of human blood, I make offers which can never be repeated. In other words, Charlton was saying he was only going to ask once for Buford to surrender. However, Buford refused to surrender with the message. He said, I reject your proposals and shall defend myself. Buford then reformed his troops into a column and continued the northward march with his baggage train near the front of the column. The baggage train is the all of the wagons carrying all the supplies that the that the unit needs. All of their any tents, any food, cooking utensils, uh, anything like that. Anything that that the the men weren't actually carrying on their backs would be carried in wagons and these this long line of wagons was called the trains, the baggage trains. Now in the military today, they still call the the uh, the group of trucks and vehicles carrying supplies for the units. They still call it the trains. Uh, <clears throat> so Tarleton uh, in in violation of the accepted rules of war at the time, continued his march while the parley took place. Now, what that means is that if you if if the two forces have met and they are having some type of parley, uh, then both sides are supposed to stop whatever movements, whatever preparations for war they're making. They're both supposed to stop uh, so that one side does not receive unfair advantage. Uh, to keep from saying, "Hey, let's have a let's have a uh, a parlay, let's have a discussion of uh, surrender, etc." And while while everyone is around the table, uh, you're moving your men forward into the attack position. You're not supposed to do that, but that's what Charles was doing. That's basically, I think, what, what almost anyone would do. So, during the parlay, Charleston's forces had continued to move forward into a position where they could attack Buford's forces. Once the parlay was over and Buford began moving uh, northward again, uh, was able to get fairly close to them uh, around 3 o'clock. The leading edge of Charlton's force caught up with Buford's rear guard. Uh, according to some of the, the Patriot eyewitness accounts, uh, a field surgeon named Robert Brownfield uh, was, I guess, 
uh, in his memoirs, wrote the, wrote down what he had seen uh, of the battle. The five dragoons of the rear guard were captured, and their leader, Captain Pearson, was inhumanely mangled by saber cuts, some inflicted after he had fallen. Buford then stopped the column, except for the artillery and the baggage, which he ordered to continue on, and formed a single battle line near some open woods. Tarleton, uh, who with his cavalry, with who, some of whose horses uh, were so tired out from the pursuit that he was unable to bring his artillery into range, established a command post on a nearby hill and organized his forces for the attack. According to his account of the battle, British Legion Dragoons had a like number of infantry onto the right side of the field. The Dragoons of the 17th, along with some British uh, Legion Dragoons in the center, and he personally took command of the left wing, commanding 30 chosen horse and some infantry. The stragglers who were arriving were supposed to form a reserve corps at the top of the hill. Now, what happened next is. <clears throat> It apparently the subject of much debate. Uh, the uh, supposedly Tarleton's line charged, and Buford waited until the enemy was within ten yards before giving the order to fire. Now this was a tactical mistake on Buford's part because it enabled Tarleton's formations to hold while giving. Buford's men time to fire only a single volley before the British riders were among them attack, attacking them. Uh, as called Charlton's cavalry tore Buford's uh, inexperienced line to pieces, many of the of Buford's men began laying down their arms, uh, you know, putting their muskets on the ground and raising their arms. According to the Patriot account then, Buford Realizing the cause was lost, dispatched a white flag toward Tarleton in an attempt to surrender. However, Tarleton had been unhorsed. Now, exactly when and how exactly Tarleton had been unhorsed uh, is another uh, is another differing series of accounts, uh, and there. It could be that Tarleton never received news of this. He never saw it or he never received news of it. Uh, although it is clear from Patriot accounts that a flag was sent. And uh, now they, they, the records do defer on who carried the flag and how its messenger was treated. Uh, What's also apparent is that the fighting continued on both sides, even though the flag was visible, and uh, the, even the conflicting patriot accounts, none of the British accounts of the battle mentioned the surrender flag, uh, agree that the flag was effectively refused. Buford and some of his cavalry then escaped the battlefield. By historical accounts, uh, some of some of the the accounts say that Tarleton's unhorsing. Now he just when they they're saying he got unhorsed, I believe he was thrown from his horse during the attack. I don't believe he was he was shot or wounded or knocked from his horse. He was I believe he was thrown from his horse, but. The Loyalist cavalry, Prussian, that the rebels had shot at their commander at Tarleton while the flag was being presented. And apparently this infuriated them, and they began to slaughter the Patriots. Uh, according to the Patriot surgeon Brownfield, who wrote down his account of the battle. Now, he wrote it down many years after the war. The loyalist attack carrying out indiscriminate carnage never surpassed by the most ruthless atrocities of the most barbarous savages. Charles' men stabbed the wounded where they lay, regardless 
of implied surrender, uh, even for uh, even for a quarter to a half hour after the battle had ended, after the battle had ended, after it had all stopped, they continued to to stab the fallen soldiers. Uh, now, according to Tarleton's report of the battle. The American rebel casualties were uh, 113 men killed, uh, 147 wounded, and released on parole. <laughs> yeah, they they were released on parole because they were they were wounded so grievously they couldn't even be moved. <laughs> Which meant that he couldn't capture them and load them up and take them anywhere. He had to he had to write them out as released on parole. What that means is if you're captured and you're released on parole, it means that that you're uh, that you're never supposed to uh, fight again against uh, against whatever side has released you. Uh, the powders that Buford had and the 26 wagons from the uh, supply trains were captured. Their British losses were five killed, twelve wounded, with eleven horses killed and nineteen horses wounded. Uh, so, and Charles' men, of course, were able to uh, to take uh, to capture. Uh, they were able to uh, go forward and capture the American baggage train. Historians uh, blamed Tarleton for the massacre, even though most contemporary references to it did not describe it as such. Carlton is reported, Cornwallis described the battle as a slaughter, but claimed that his men, thinking their commander had been killed, engaged in a vindictive asperity not easily restrained after he was unhorsed. Uh, Moultrie, William Moultrie, noted that the lopsided casualty count was not unusual for similar battles in which one side gained a decided advantage early in the battle. Historian Jim Pooch argues that the battle was as much a massacre as similar events led by Patriot commanders. Uh, David Wilson, on the other hand, holds Tarleton responsible for the slaughter, noting that it represented a loss of discipline, something Tarleton would have been responsible for maintaining. Now, Tarleton got reprimanded for transgressions by his men at the Battle of Monk's Corner back in April, and a Cornwallis aide, Charles Stedman, wrote of the British actions at Waxhaws that the virtue of humanity was totally forgot. <clears throat> the battle, the wounded were treated at nearby churches by the the folks, the the uh, the congregants of the churches one of whom was a young Andrew Jackson Tarleton claimed that after the battle ended the wounded of both sides were treated with equal humanity and that the British provided every possible convenience but due to the large number of wounded people from all over the countryside came to assist in their care they learned of what had happened and the news of the apparent violation of quarter on Tarleton's part spread very rapidly throughout the region, temporarily consolidated British control over South Carolina. And uh, during the time the, the Patriot sentiment was uh, was at a low ebb, they had lost uh, a good number of men in the battle and the massacre, and <clears throat> the recruiting for the Continental Army was not going well. Uh General Clinton, uh, among other acts, before he left Charleston for New York, revoked the parole of surrendered patriots. This this was actually pretty much of a, uh, like, technically violating the accepted rules of war, the same way that, that Charleston was violating rules of war when he had his army continued to march forward during the parlay. Uh, 
So what that means is that uh, when the when the Patriots surrendered, they would be released. Allowed to go home, return to their homes and families, uh, as long as they agreed not to uh, fight again. And whenever Clinton was leaving for Charleston, he revoked their parole. That means what he did is he ended up rounding up all of those all of those paroled prisoners and taking them with him. <clears throat> the uh, This battle, the Battle of Waxhaws, and Clinton's actions were probably very, uh, were very much responsible for, for changing uh, the direction of the war in the South. Many other folks who might very well have stayed neutral uh, began to flock to the Patriots. And Charles Quarter and Remember Buford uh, became as much of a battle cry for these forces as Remember the Alamo uh, would come to become uh, a battle cry for the uh, for the Texas troops. Uh, it was the same thing. Uh, you have to remember that whenever you when you do something really horrific, well, it may it may give you temporary advantage over your enemy. There are a lot of unintended consequences of that. Like I said, the a large number of folks who may have remained neutral during uh, the conflict no longer did so. They began to enlist uh, in the Continental Army and in the militias in great numbers in the South. <clears throat> News of the massacre uh, was also directly responsible for the creation of volunteer militia forces among the over-the-mountain men. Uh, these were the uh, the folks from the uh, Watauggan uh, and Sycamore Shoals settlements. Uh, these per- these militia guys participated in actions against British loyalists at both the Battle of Musgrove Hill uh, and they they ended up fighting in the decisive defeat uh, of British Major Patrick Ferguson's command on October 7, 1780, at Kings Mountain. And uh, the Loyalist forces at King's Mountain uh, apparently received close to the same treatment uh, during, uh, with the militia giving cries of Charles Quarter as they uh, as they killed hundreds forces, and they had actually destroyed the the Loyalist Movement there, uh, and the Battle of Kings Mountain. And we talked about uh, uh, Kings Mountain, uh, the Battle of Kings Mountain, uh, in another episode. All right. uh, I think that's going to do it uh, for this evening. Uh, I want to... uh, I want to thank the folks uh, who are listening. I want to thank AMD, my co-host. Uh, every time I'm here, he's here. And uh, we'll see you again this next Thursday. We're running late uh, tonight due to some, uh, some unfortunate uh, circumstances. Uh, I, uh, I'm i still trying to figure out uh, what the best, how to best run the show because I've got... Uh, I've got so little time between uh, when I get off uh, work where I am and the and the amount of time it takes me to get home and get here. But if something happens uh, during that, that time period, it causes a delay in, in starting the show. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll see you this next Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Until then... Uh, 
God bless and keep you all. And God got our hand in this for our cause is just. Thanks and good night. <laughs>